And this morning, continuing in our study in Amos, looking at the entirety of chapter 4 and verses 1 through 13, prepare to meet your God. Now, just real quick to kind of shake all of the cardboard and acrylic paint cobwebs out of our brains and kind of return us to focus where we were last week, just a bit of review. We get to the book of Amos ultimately because of the sin of Jeroboam I, the very first king of northern Israel, and his sin was not that of simple demonic paganism but instead fearing that the worship of the one true God in Israel would turn the hearts of the northern tribes back to the house of David, Jeroboam refashioned God in the manner that he needed him to be, and so blasphemed. In 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28, it says, The king took counsel, and he made two calves of gold, And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And having removed the immutable standard of righteousness from amongst the people, they immediately began to fall into the vilest of depravity, into a madness of believing their own deceitful heart above the truth of God that was set before them. And so now, during the reign of Jeroboam II, Jeroboam I's namesake, and two years before the earthquake, Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, saw a word. In Amos chapter 1, verse 2, Amos speaks of the word that he saw. He said, The Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Friends, when the Lord roars, his people come trembling, but the wicked harden their hearts. And out of that trembling and in the midst of that hardness, a very partial God shows no partiality. He roars forth in the first two chapters of the book of Amos at Syria and Philistia, at Tyre and Edom, at Ammon and Moab, even at Judah. But his particular focus is upon the nation of Israel, for they are indeed a particular people, a holy people set apart unto him. In Psalm 147, chat verses 19 and 20, the psalmist writes that he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his rules to Israel. He is not dealt thusly with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Friends, the reality is, is that with much blessing comes much responsibility. As we've seen last week, there is an anger whose foundation sets in love that is stronger than any anger that can ever come forth from hatred. As Amos says in chapter 3, verse 2, the Lord says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore. Not because he didn't know them, 
but because he did. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. So this morning, hear this word, you cows. Amos chapter 4 verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. You who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Now, if that's not a bold opening line for what you're supposed to hear, I don't know what is. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Now, when anytime you call someone a cow, it's going to get their attention pretty much right off the bat. What is interesting, I think, here particularly is the modifier that goes along with it because we understand what it means to be you know beckoned to listen as you are beckoning a cow to listen but most of us probably don't know what the meaning of the cows of Bashan is and it is a very particular one it has a lot of scriptural weight and so if you want to kind of do your research and you know look below the page you know below the line on the page or open up your bible encyclopedia or whatever you will find out that geographically Bashan is the region that is east and northeast of the sea of Galilee it is what in the modern day we would call the Golan Heights it is absolutely one of the most beautiful places in all of Israel it is the lushest of green pastures it looks down upon the region in which Christ did the majority of his ministry, a freshwater lake that's seven and a half miles wide and roughly 15 miles long. The grass is emerald green. It is 20 degrees cooler than it is in the valley below it, and it supplies the entirety of fresh water to the whole nation. Man, they have ice cream in Israel that will rival anything that you will get in Switzerland. And it's because the cows that are walking around up there aren't white and black. They're all brown. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. Geographically, it was allotted to the tribes of Gad and Reuben and to Manasseh. It is the very heart of northern Israel. There are still dairy farms there to this day. But there's more to Bashan than just its geographical reality. There is a spiritual reality tied to it as well. For before the tribes of Gad and Reuben and Manasseh took control of Bashan as is in the days of Amos, before that it belongs to the Amorites, very specifically to a king named Og. And his character and his spirit match his name. In Numbers chapter 21 verses 31 through 35, is recorded the events that lead to Bashan leaving the possession of the Amorites and becoming the possession of Israel. In Numbers chapter 21 and verse 31, it is written that Israel lived in the land of the Amorites, and Moses sent to spy out Jazir, and they captured his villages and disposed the Amorites who were there. And then they turned, and they went up by way to Bashan, And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against them, he and all his people, to battle at Edrei. But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him. Now, I know here in Numbers chapter 21, that seems like a pretty straightforward statement. 
we'll get to it in just a second. There, apart from the apart from the grace and the blessings, apart from God going before them, there is much reason to fear Og. The Lord says, Do not fear them, for I have given him into your hand and all his people and his land, and you shall do to them as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites who lived in Heshbon. And so they defeated him and his sons and all his people until he had no survivor left. That is not a turn of the phrase. They possessed his land. The Lord comes to Moses as they're entering Bashan and he says, Look, you've already conquered some of these Amorites before, but there is particular need for you to understand that I'm going with you and you don't need to fear this guy. Because apart from that, there would be particular need to fear him. You see, he was the last of the remnant of the Raphaim. Og was a giant. In Deuteronomy chapter 3, in verses 3 through 6, and then again in verse 11, it records this. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people. And we struck him down until he had no survivor left. And we took all his cities at that time. And there was not a city that we did not take from them. Sixty cities, the whole region of Argob, the kingdom of Og and Bashan. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides very many unwalled villages. We devoted them to destruction, as we did to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, children. For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Raphaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not... Rabbah of the Ammonites. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. Og's bed was 13 and a half feet long and six feet wide, made of iron. And so was his kingdom. Until the Lord of hosts came and gave them into the hands of recently freed brickmakers. And cities high, fortified with walls to the heaven, 60 in total, not even counting the unwalled villages, fell before them like dominoes. One of the most wicked people of the land withered. Before the roar of the Lord that comes forth from Zion. As a matter of fact, so great was the victory that the Lord gave to the people of Israel over Og of Bashan that 40 plus years later, it still struck as much fear in the hearts of the Canaanites in Jericho as did the drowning of the Egyptians in the Red Sea. I want you to get that in your head for a minute because when the spies go into the land, if you're at camp, when the spies go into the land to spy out the land and they end up in Jericho and end up having to hide under the flax on the roof of Rahab's house. 
And they say, why are you helping us out? All the rest of these people want to kill us. Rahab, why are you willing to help us out? Why are you risking your own neck to save ours? She cites two examples of why she fears them more than she fears her own people. And one is the fact that God drowned a sizable portion of the Egyptian army by splitting the Red Sea and allowing the people of Israel to cross on dry land. And because of what they did to Og. Joshua chapter 2, verse 8 through 11. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you, even he who sleeps upon an iron bed. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Bashan represents everything that Israel wasn't. Or at least wasn't supposed to be. In the 22nd Psalm, the Psalm of David, the the Psalm that Christ quoted, the very last words that he spoke while hanging upon the cross, David speaks about his assessment of the character of Bashan. Psalm 22, 1 and 2, and then 12 and 13. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. And what did God do with the raving and roaring lion who slept upon a 13 and a half foot long bed of iron? He destroyed them before former slaves. And he took all of his heights and all of his green pastures and the snows of Carmel and he gave it to Israel in an event that was so magnificent that over 40 years later it struck just as much fear in the hearts of the Canaanites as did what God did at the Red Sea. He gave it all to them. Moses recorded it In Deuteronomy chapter 32, in the song of Moses, speaking about the way that the Lord was good to his people, that he was blessing his people. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, in verse 8 through 14, if you will, I think this one is worth, they're all worth turning to, this one particularly for our purposes today. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, in verse 8, we only have the time this morning for a portion of the song of Moses Moses writes and says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, 
When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field. He suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats with the very finest of wheat and you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grave. The Lord, when he divided the peoples of the world according to the number of the sons of God, he set apart Jacob as his allotted portion. He set him upon the high places, both literally and spiritually. He set him on the high places of Bashan, where the milk flows, and the curds are fluffy, and the lambs are fat. He gave him the best of everything. He took what belonged to the king that slept on the iron bed, and he gave it to his people. Beware his people that you do not take the blessings of the Spirit into the hands of the flesh and thereby create a curse. For it is exactly what is exactly what Jeshurun, it is exactly what Jacob did. For here, Moses' song takes a turn. In verse 14, he said, Curds from the herd and milk from the flock with the fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats and the very finest of wheat and you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape, but Jeshurum, but Jacob grew fat and he kicked. He grew fat, stout, and sleek, and then he forsook the God who had made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. If you read What Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah say, there is a common refrain that runs amongst all of them. And it basically goes like this. You had it good for so long, you became entitled believing that it should be good for you. That somehow you deserved it, that it was your place You knew you were a particular people and you equated in your mind being particular with the rights of peculiarity. 
when indeed it was the Lord that remanded to himself the right of peculiarity. For he indeed is a holy God. Other than, set apart, different, peculiar. What makes them special? It's not them. It's him that makes them special. Heaven help the man that forgets it. Abandoning the truth of the one true God that was literally right before them. When they did this, when Jeroboam the first did this and said, This, O Israel, is thy Elohim who led you out of Egypt and raised these two golden calves up. When he did that, the Shekinah glory, the manifest presence of Yahweh himself still shone between the cherubs above the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem. When it was right before them, they said, we need a God that's different than that. It's not practical to work with the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Lest people go down to Jerusalem and worship and their heart be turned back to the house of David and our kingdom fail, we need God to be different than that. So we're not going to run off and go find a new God. We're going to say, this is the same God, the one that brought you out of Egypt. He's just different than what he says he is. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how different history would be if the first foreign diplomatic visit that was made by Jeroboam of the first of Israel was to Jerusalem to worship before the Ark of His Covenant? but they didn't. Abandoning the truth of God for the madness of their own heart, what their father David had once hated, they now love. What he loathed, they now lust for. God had made them to ride upon the high places. And Israel liked riding upon the high places. They liked them so much they decided that it would be a good idea to use them not to glorify the God that set them there, but according to Amos chapter 2, instead to use them for a father and his son to fornicate on their neighbor's cloak taken in pledge. They lusted after the strong, well-appointed bulls that David so despised. They lusted after him so much they were willing to become their heifers. And in doing so, it was a fruitful union. They produced two golden calves. What has become profane, a holy God will drag away. So it continues in Amos chapter 4 and verse 2. After saying, hear this word, O cows of Bashan. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, every last one of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead. You won't need a gate. 
You shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. I would have you note that this is not simply prophetic imagery. Instead, the carved reliefs in the palaces of Sennacherib and Nineveh record the carnage of captives being pulled through holes in the wall on lines with hooks like catfish. What God warned Sennacherib would publish for not just all the world of his day, but for posterity to see. And so the Lord calls them. He calls them with the blasphemer's call to worship. In Amos chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Because this is, hear this word, O cows of Bashan. Hear this word, you who lusted after the things that the man who was after God's own heart hated. Come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgression." This is a shocking thing for a man to say. This is a call to worship. Come. These were common in the ancient Near East. And you would expect among the people of Israel, the call to worship would be a call to come and worship, a call to come and to be sanctified, a call to come and have your sins blotted out, to come that you might live. But that is not what the prophet says. He calls them to come and transgress. To do so at Bethel and Gilgal, he didn't pick these by accident. Bethel in the Hebrew is Bethel, and it literally means house of God. And it was called so with very good cause. As a matter of fact, it was Jacob, later to be renamed Israel himself, who gave it its name, because before that it was called Luz. And in Genesis chapter 28, in verses 10 through 19, it says that Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place, a certain place that's later going to be called Bethel, the house of God. He came to a certain place and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head, and he laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You see, it wasn't only to Abraham that the gospel was declared. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. And then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. 
And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the Bet Elohim. None other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and he poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of the place. He shortened it up from Bet Elohim to Bet El. He called it Bethel, the house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at first. And so here's the prophet. He says, come to Bethel. Come to the house of God to do what? To, to set up a pillar and pour oil on top of it and worship like your father Jacob did? No, come to Bethel to transgress. For what was once the place of Jacob viewing the Lord on high from heaven is now the stall for the fat cow's calf. 1 Kings 12, 28. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your Elohim, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set up one in Bethel and the other in Dan. You talk about blasphemy. The place where the gospel was declared to Israel when Israel wasn't a nation but was just a dude is now the stall for the fatted cow's calf. And what about Gilgal? Gilgal, for you kids that were at camp, you will remember, is the very place where Joshua led Israel to cross the Jordan into the promised land. In the book of Joshua, in chapter 3, the word of the Lord has come to Joshua, and he has asked him to do something in faith that no reasonable person would ever do, and that is to take a 600-plus pound box made out of gold, put it on the shoulders of four men. By the way, the box that is the emblem of the covenant that you have with God containing the law and the very presence of God manifest there himself to put that 600 plus pound box above your shoulders contrary to what you saw in Raiders of the Lost Ark the poles are not at the top they're at the bottom put that thing above your shoulders and step off into a flood stage Jordan that is roaring over a hundred yards wide and the Lord says, I'll dry it up. And you will cross. And so in Joshua chapter 3, in verse 14, So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priest bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priest bearing the ark were dipped into the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood up. They rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarthan. And those flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. 
And now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. And when all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. The narrative continues. And down in verse 15, it says this, The Lord said to Joshua, Command the priest bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, Come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. And the people come up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and they encamped at Gilgal. They encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. But it's not so much important that they camped there, but what they did once they camped. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal, and he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord our God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did at the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever." And so the place at Gilgal, which was supposed to be for remembrance of the mighty things that the Lord had done, so not just Israel, but the people of the whole world, even you and me today, might know what God did for them. That place of remembrance is no longer a place of remembrance. Instead, it is a place that the prophet is calling them to, to multiply their transgression. The evil that is in this world from the very beginning, from the very beginning, not just with what happened in the garden, but what happened in the heart of Satan himself, has never and never will be something that exists unto itself. It is always a corruption of that which is holy and good. Every single time. They took the place that was the house of God that from which their namesake came, Jacob, Israel, where he set up the rock that he had laid his head on that night. Sound like anybody else you know, familiar? In worship, they took that place and they made it the place in which they hoard after their calf because he was a more satisfactory version of who they wanted God to be than who God actually was. They took the place that was supposed to be the place of remembrance, and they turned it into a place of transgression and shame. Friends, let me tell you something. If it wasn't for sarcasm, the prophets would have no sense of humor at all, because that's exactly what's happening here. 
the man of God is not actually inviting these people to come and multiply transgression. He is throwing in their face what they already have and are even now constantly doing. Listen to what he says. Amos chapter 4, verse 4. Come to Bethel. Come to the house of God and transgress. Come to Gilgal, to the place of remembrance, and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, and proclaim your free will offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do. O people of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. Don't be confused. This is not the man of God inviting people to sin. What did Paul say about that? We just finished Romans not being. The Lord is throwing in their face what they love to do. Oh yeah, come down to the house of God. Make a mockery of it. Come to the place of remembrance. See if you can't make it worse than Bethel. Multiply your transgressions. Come, make your tithes. Make your thanksgiving offerings. Do all your stuff because I know you. Publish it, he says. I love that. Let everybody know. Put it on the billboards. Put it on the TV. Live stream it. Let them know. For so you love to do. They love to be seen playing at righteousness. Which is all they would ever be able to do, no matter how complex their rituals became, no matter how pharisaical they became about the implication or the implementation thereof. No matter how hard they tried, all they would ever do is be playing at righteousness because they started with a toy, not a deity. You know, they made a lot of thanksgiving offerings, the Lord said, there at Gilgal and at Bethel, and I guess they did. It's easy to make thanksgiving offerings to a God who wants for you, interestingly enough, exactly what you happen to want for yourself. He warned them. God doesn't just show up this way. He warned them. He warned them what would happen. And the reason he warned them is because he is good. He is a God who is slow to anger. He's not adverse to anger, understand, but he is slow to it. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 through 7, explaining, because he's about to say, you're about to meet me. You're about to meet who I am. And so way back in the day, when Israel didn't know legitimately who the Lord was, the Lord explains who he is to Moses. He uses his proper name here, not his title. He uses the, the, the name Yahweh. And in Exodus 34, verse 6, he says, it says, The Lord passed before him, and he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So when the Lord was explaining who he was, when Moses says, literally, when I go down to Egypt and they don't know who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is because they've been so crushed for the last 400 years in slavery, who do I tell them you are? And God said, okay, this is who you tell them I am. Yahweh, Yahweh. And here's what I'm like. I'm merciful and gracious and I'm slow to anger. Doesn't mean that I don't get angry, but I'm slow to it. I bound in steadfast love and faithfulness. I keep it for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. But listen, I by no means clear the guilty. I'm a just God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is his nature. And so God just doesn't come out of nowhere with this. He doesn't just come at them ranting about multiplying transgression. He doesn't just come at them berating them as cows. Even though he comes to them ranting about multiplying transgression and berates them as cows. That's not where it started. He sent them as prophets. In Amos chapter 2, I mean just within the text, in Amos chapter 2, I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? What you're seeing there is the beginning of a legal argument. When they start whining about, hey, we didn't know, he's going to go, no, you did know. Because I sent your own sons, I raised them up. Not people from outside of you, from amongst you. I raised them up. You wouldn't listen. He says it in chapter 3 and verse 7 and 8, for the, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing His secret to His servants, the prophets. The lion is roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? He didn't just raise up prophets. You know, they say you got to speak in a way that people will hear you. He didn't just raise up prophets. He also sent discipline and punishment. In Amos chapter 4, verse 6, I gave you cleanliness of teeth in all your cities. Boy, today, when we have not just plenty, when we have gluttonous plenty in this country, when I go to the dentist every six months, Sarah's teeth are always cleaner than mine. I'm a prolific brusher, even more than I probably should. I just, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't even know why, but I mean... Uh, flossing's like a home root canal to me, you know? So you go in there and your teeth are never as clean as they are. You need to be flossing, right? So in this this society, when we have like this glut of blessing, getting a report of clean teeth at the dentist is considered a good thing. This is not a good thing. These people's teeth are clean because they haven't eaten anything in so long. They don't have anything to pick out of them. I gave you cleanliness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, and yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. We didn't stop there. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. And yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. And yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. 
I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, and yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you. So not just that you were defeated in battle, but so that you were no more. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning and yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. He sent his prophets. He sent discipline. He sent punishment of hunger and drought and disease in the fields and pestilence and plague and disaster. And yet they did not turn. And you go, man, how can people be that stupid? If you know what you know, if you have the history that you have, if you have the word of God laid before you, if you've got a stack of rocks in Gilgal that bear witness to what this God has done for you, if the hearts of the Canaanites were melting because of what God has done for you, how could you be so stupid? How could you let it go that far? How could you not put down your foot and go, nope, no more, this far, you know, no farther? How could we? I would wager to bet that if I told you 25 years ago where this country would be today, you would say I would, have never, I would never let it go that far. I would never accept it getting there, not even close. I wager... That if I told you where the Southern Baptist Convention was today, you would said no, not even close. No. But we're here today. He sent prophets. He sent drought. He sent pestilence. He sent hunger. And yet they did not return. So what are you going to do? Well, what's going to happen is, is the children are going to meet dad. Therefore, because he did all of this and they would not turn to him, in verse 12, he says, Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. So when you've sent prophets and you've sent punishment and they don't listen, what do you do? Well, I'm going to do something. Well, what's that going to be? Well, because I do it, you're going to meet me, he says. Now, by this point, we're 200 years in from the sin of Jeroboam I. These people are fully entrenched. They're fully ingrained. They grew up with it. Their parents grew up with it. Their grandparents grew up with it. Their great-grandparents grew up with it. You're going to have people standing around going, well, man, we thought we knew our God. I mean, here you got Amos, and man, this is one mouthy shepherd. You know, the first thing he does is he comes in, and he, he gives the word of the Lord to us, and he insults us and calls us all a bunch of cows that are chasing after bulls and have produced calves. He throws it in our face while we're doing it worship. You know, I mean, hey. Show a little respect here. You hurt people's feelings. They mean well. 
And then he comes in and he recounts to us all this stuff and says, get ready to meet your God. We thought we knew our God. Are we not the ones who are paying tithes? Are we not the ones who are making Thanksgiving offerings? Are we not the ones that are going down? We love to go down there and do that stuff. We thought we knew our God. He's the one that led us out of Egypt. He looks a lot like a golden calf. He's not a bull. Bulls are fierce. Calves are manageable. He's the God that had said, worship only before the ark of my covenant with priests only out of the sons of Aaron, but he changed his mind. Now he's more inclusive. He's a more inclusive God. Now we can worship at Dan, we can worship at Bethel. Guys, this is exactly the argument that the woman of, the Samaria, of Samaria made to Christ. You guys say we should worship here. Our father said we should worship there. Who knows? No, you know. Why do you know? Because the Lord has sent His prophets. He's given His word. He sent punishment where it was needed. His voice roars from Zion. You know. You cows. You just won't listen. He had said, have no other gods before, us, before Him. Don't fornicate. Don't mix with the pagan of the land. But now He's more open-minded. He's a little more easygoing. He had said, I am setting before you life and death, but now the message is only life and acceptance just the way you are. Guys, these people thought they knew their God. They thought they did. Many people think they know their God. It's not confined to the mid-first millennium B.C., Centuries later, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus would say during the Sermon on the Mount, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Many people think they know their God. They think wrong. Israel had thought wrong. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. The Lord. The God of hosts. You think you know your God, Jacob. You think you know your God, Jeshurim. You think you know your God, Israel. The one that you go and you worship at Bethel and you worship at Gilgal. And in doing so, all you do is multiply transgression. You think you know your God? He says, let me tell you who your God is. You're about to meet Him. He is the Lord. The God of hosts is His name. There are two statements there. They're important to grasp. The first, He is the Lord. He is Yahweh. He is the Lord. That is His name. The same name that He declared to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Yeah, He's that one. He's that Yahweh. He is that Lord, the one that forms mountains 
and creates wind. And at his will makes the dawn as black as night and treads upon the heights of the earth. But he includes a title here as well. A secondary clause. The Lord is his name. He is the God of hosts. Elohim Sabab. Elohim means God. Sabab is most often, about 50% of the time, translated as host, and that's fine as long as you know what host he's talking about. Because the word host in Hebrew doesn't simply mean many. You know, that's the way we talk about it in the English. A host of something is a bunch of them. So, you know, you may go to the game and say the crowd was filled with a whole host of home team fans. It's not what it means in the Hebrew. Sabab means army and war. For instance, it is used in Numbers chapter 1 verse 3. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of the names, every male, head by head, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. All who are able to go to Sabab, all who are able to go to host. You and Aaron shall list them company by company. Israel will meet their God. They will meet Yahweh. And when they do, they will find out he is not a calf. He does not bawl in the stall. Instead, he roars for Yahweh by his own confession is the God of war. And when Sennacherib comes knocking, they will know it. Yahweh is the God of war. And he will, they will meet him on his terms and not on theirs. And they will meet him when he is furious in his anger. Not because he hates them, but because he knows them and loves them. Look at Ezekiel chapter 20. Man, you want to talk about an enlightening text. You want to talk about an enlightening text as to why God sends this kind of punishment and war upon His people. We typically read this stuff and go, okay, well, we think about it like we're in the second grade, which is not necessarily bad, but in here it lacks a little bit of depth. We think about it like, okay, you do bad things and you get pain inflicted so that you learn not to do bad things. Man, this is so much deeper than that. This goes right to the heart of God's character, the very thing that burns in him so deeply that it would cause him to sacrifice himself for the people that he has chosen to love. I mean, it is right there. You want to know the whys of the gospel? Here it is. 
in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 30 through 38. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Will you defile yourselves after the manner of your fathers and go whoring after their detestable things? When you present your gifts and offer up your children in fire, you defile yourselves with all of your idols to this day. And shall I be inquired of you, O house of Israel? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. God says, you're about to meet me, buddy, but you're not going to meet me on your terms. Why? Because Yahweh, the Lord, your Lord, is the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of war. You will not be inquiring of me. I'll be inquiring of you. What is in your mind shall never happen. This madness of heart by which you have deceived yourselves to believe as opposed to the truth that is laid right in front of you, this thing that's in your mind, not happening. You notice there is no parlay here. There's no negotiation. There's no meet you in the middle. There's no compromise compromise. Friends, you can compromise on what's for dinner. There's some stuff that can't be compromised on. Years and years and years ago, I had a young couple sitting in my office that none of you know. And they were there for marriage counseling, and it was not looking good. And I said, I said, I said listen, I, I said, what are you going to do if if y'all disagree on something and, and he says no or she says no, and she just looked at me and said, I'll just get up and go to my mom's, I guess. And I was like, well, that's not going to work. She goes, well, we'll, probably, we, we, we'll, we'll compromise. And I said, what happens if you can't compromise? Well, there's always a compromise. I said, no, there's not. I said, one of you gets a job offer in Denver. The other has a job here. What are you going to do, compromise and, like, live in the middle of, like, Hayes, Kansas and commute? Like even in the physical world, there's things that just don't compromise. Man, when it comes to God, God doesn't compromise. He doesn't. They didn't end up getting married. It was for the best for both of them. This that is in your mind shall never happen. The thought, let us be like the nations, like the tribes of the countries, and worship wood and stone. The Lord says, man, I'm not letting you off. Man, when, when you, want, you want to, I'm not going to get on the soapbox because I've got to get through this, but you want to talk about the, the error that the church has today as concerns marriage, buddy. Marriage is a testimony of Christ and his church when it comes to this covenant. God says, you can try to run all you want. I'm not letting you off the hook. You, you don't get to this thought that's in your mind that you're going to run off and you're going to be like all the rest of them. It's not going to happen. Thus, the book of Hosea, which deals with this specifically. It's not going to happen. As I live, declares the Lord. Please reference Amos 4, verse 1 and 2. I have sworn by my holiness. As I live, declares the Lord, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. We sing that with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. His love endures forever. Man, he is about to crack some skulls. As I live, declares the Lord, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. We leave that part out of the lyrics. 
with wrath poured out. I will be king over you. Notice, this is an anger that springs forth from love, not from hatred. If it sprang forth from hatred, he would say, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will blot you out from under heaven. But he doesn't say that. You start understanding Scripture, you start getting happy in all the wrong places. Because he didn't say that. And you should expect him to say that. That should be what's coming. I mean, all the rest of the sermon up to this point is a build-up for this reality, right? You should expect to be like, bug, smack, done. But he doesn't. With a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, I will be king over you. I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. Prepare to meet your God. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will make you pass under the rod. Why, Lord? Because I'm bringing you into the bond of the covenant. I'm going to make you pass under the rod. Why? Because you want us to... To, to learn when we do bad things and that causes pain and we shouldn't do bad things. Sure, you can take that away. That's not what he's saying, man. I will bring you under the rod because it's the only way to bring a stiff-necked and rebellious people into the bond of the covenant. I will purge out the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they shall not enter into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. There is an anger founded in love stronger than any anger founded in hate because it is able to preserve instead of destroy that which it is angry with. Listen closely, Israel. Listen closely, and in the north you can hear the horns of Sennacherib blow. You can hear the scrape of the Assyrian horde as they sharpen their hooks. Well, I'm glad it's a light read. You know, what we have a tendency to do, I think, today is when we study these things, we we kind of isolate them, we, we box them in, and um, we... Um, we assage raw conscience and say stuff like, well, man, I sure am glad that God isn't like that today. He is like that today. It's exactly what he's like. He hasn't changed one bit. He's immutable as he can be. This is not Old Testament theology. This is God theology. You need to take that dividing line, that little page that just says Old Testament, New Testament on it, that's blank them and just tear that sucker right on out because it is a false guide. He's the same God. In Hebrews chapter 13, not Old Testament, 
could have picked a lot of Old Testament scriptures, decided to go with New Testament ones on immutability instead. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 and 8. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same God to Paul as he was to Amos. He's the same God to John as he was to Jacob. Well, John thought he had him figured out. John thought he had a different one. John was so comfortable with Christ, he would lean against his breast at the Last Supper. John got a load of Christ in his old age, and instead of leaning against his breast, he fell down at his feet as though dead. James, his half-brother, on his mama's side, Wrote in James chapter 1, verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Prepare to meet your God, O fat cows. Yahweh... The unchangeable, immutable, and holy God is His name. And He is the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord of war. It's true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. James continues in chapter 5 and says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you in the cities of the harvesters, have reached the ears of who? Of the Lord of hosts. Revelation chapter 19. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and the one setting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has written a name that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Guys, let me tell you something about the Lord of hosts. Let me tell you something about the God of war. Everybody reads that and they see he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and they want to think back directly to the cross and go, oh, isn't that a precious expression of the salvation of Jesus Christ? Friends, that right there, according to Ezekiel, is a robe that is splattered red, dipped in the blood of his enemies. Oh, it's salvation, all right. Got to be something to be saved from. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven. Why? Because he is the Lord of armies. He is the God of hosts. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Or as Peter said about him in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9-10, through 10, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But on that day, the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. 
the God of war, Yahweh, who roared forth from Zion in Amos is the same God that we worship today. The God of war roaring from Zion is the same Lamb of God crying out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As a matter of fact, I'll take it a step further. The reason that Christ is on the cross crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? is because Yahweh is the God of war. That's why He's there is to fulfill the wrath of a holy and righteous God so that His people may be brought under the rod and into the bond of covenant and that He might be their king instead of their destroyer. You say, well, I don't think a loving God is like that. Listen here, you fat cow. You're about to meet him. Prepare to meet your God. You're not going to get him on your terms. I don't care what you think. But you shouldn't care whether or not I care what you think. You need to care whether or not he cares what you think. And friends, from what we're reading today, I'm guessing he don't. Prepare to meet your God. Friends, we'll all meet him. Israel, Judah, the Philistines, the Tyrenians, the Sidonians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Hittites, all the rest of the ites. All you nations, all you Gentiles. We'll all meet him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All of us. He's writing, and specifically in this context, Paul is writing to a church presumably full of Christians. So don't think that, you know, the dates that you have written in your Bible are going to immune you from this. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether for good or for evil. Friends, your concern should not be whether or not you will meet your God. You will meet your God. His name will be Yahweh, and he will be a lot of things. Amongst them, he will be a God of war. Your concern should not be whether or not you will meet your God. Your concern should be when you meet him, on which side of the battlements will he place you? That's the concern. Will it be to the right or to the left? Will you be following behind him in Revelation 19 as part of the armies of heaven? Or will his sword be bearing down on you and splattering his robes with your blood? You're going to meet him. You're going to meet him. You know, we, we, we take this, and, and, and rightfully so, man. It's this kind of like mouthful of chicklets kind of statement. Prepare to meet your God. And, and hey, it is that. But friends, 
that statement is, is going to come to all of us. You're going to meet him. Don't be concerned about that. Be concerned about which side of the battlement you will find yourself on. For salvation exists in the midst of judgment. And so in closing this morning, I'm going to call your attention one more time back to chapter 3. In Amos chapter 3, verse 12, Thus says the Lord, As the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Man, right here in the midst of just judgment, 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 berating these people. Listen to this, you cows. Just sarcasm upon sarcasm. Come, come to Gilgal. Come. Come, multiply transgressions. Come, come to the house of God. Come to Bethel and transgress. In the midst of this beratement and sarcasm, the reminder of all the stuff he's done, the prophets that he sent, the punishment he sent, and, and, and not the threat, but the promise that you're about to meet your God, the very God of war. In the midst of this, here's this, this statement that in all of this destruction, man, there is salvation. That is, the shepherd rescues from the lion a, a, a leg or two or a piece of an ear. So too will it be for the house of Israel. And you go, man, that's, that's not very comforting. It is if you're a chunk of ear. It is if you're one of the legs that gets brought back. That's pretty comforting if you're one of those. At this point in time, people go, man, that's not a very comforting salvation. I'm glad I wasn't the one receiving that word. I'm comforted that today salvation is for everyone. Don't be comforted in that. Because it's not true. Once again, from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 through 14. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those that find it are few. Don't be mad at me. Take it up with Christ. Those who find it are few. Friends, today salvation is not for everyone. Salvation is freely offered to everyone who hears. Don't you go putting words in my mouth. Salvation is freely offered to everyone who hears. But it will not come to everyone. Those who find it are few. While freely offered to all who hear, salvation will only be found by those who repent in faith. That is it. That is it. I'm going to read it one more time. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Friends, I fear for a society where everyone walking around believes they're a Christian. 
That's how it used to be in America. It was a lie then, the lie is being exposed now. I fear for that society because it's not true. Jesus said, those who find it will be few. The gospel was being proclaimed in Jerusalem. You just saw some amazing things. 3,000 men, men alone, saved in a day. No telling how many it was by the time you figure the women and children. The gospel only records the number of men that were saved. The number could have easily, with the number of kids these guys had running around, could have easily been over 25,000 people. Easy. Saved in a day. Folks, Jerusalem's a big city. And as with the harvest, it often comes in a glut. Because the persecution and the crackdown that happened after that slowed things down in Jerusalem considerably. Salvation is freely offered to all who hear it, but is found only by those who repent in faith. And you go, man, listen to this, you fat cows. Lots of sarcasm, lots of punishment. Prepare to meet your God. Guess who he is? He's the God of war. There is salvation, but it's a piece of an ear and a piece of a leg. Salvation is found by few. That kind of stuff makes me anxious good don't take a pill for it that's some anxiety you don't want to go away that makes me anxious good it shouldn't make you fearful because fear leads to persuasion the persuasion that accompanies salvation and life and the worship of God at Bethel and the glory of God at Gilgal and treading upon the high places instead of fornicating upon the high places. And here's how we know because Paul wasn't finished in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 simply with verse 10. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says... For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, because this is true, because prepare to meet your God and he is a God of war is a true statement. Because this is true, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, what do we do? We persuade others. Man, and if you think you know your God and don't, I'll just let you in on the, kind of what's behind the curtain. That's what I am endeavoring to do today is to know the fear of the Lord that you may be persuaded. That you may be persuaded. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known to you also, to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again by giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not what is in the heart. If we are beside ourselves, if I'm saying stuff that weirds you out, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. We're in our right mind. It's for you. 
For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so if you will allow me this morning, what I would say to you is this, is that the prophet of God and the apostle of God are all speaking out of the spirit of the same God who is immutable and was no different in Amos' day than he is in Paul's day. No different. And he says this, fear that you may be persuaded. And having been persuaded, when you meet your God, you will find yourself on the right side of the battlement. You will find yourself a piece of an ear or of a leg or of the corner of the couch or the pillow. And having been found to be this, instead of what you well could have been, you will find yourself not only fearing him, but loving him for what he has done for you so that the love of Christ the fear of God draws us and persuades us. The love of Christ might control us. He hung on that cross not in spite of the fact that he is the God of war. He hung on that cross because he is the God of war. And he's also the God of love. And both had to be satisfied. And so satisfying both in the sacrifice of himself, one died that all may die. One lived that all may live. Say it makes me anxious. Be anxious. Fear and be persuaded. Come running to Jesus Christ because he is both lamb and lion. It will show what you are. When the Lord roars from Zion, the wicked harden their hearts. But his people come trembling. I pray that this week, as we're looking towards VBS, that we will see children come trembling. I pray today, if the Holy Spirit moves on you, that you would come trembling. Not to me. Not, not to, you know, the, the front of the steps here, even though that's open to you. My prayer is that you would come to the Lord. Don't be a fat cow. Be an ear. It's the place to be. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, your word is heavy and you are strong. I don't know what else to say, Lord. We glorify in it. Lord, we pray that it would be effectual to, to, to return to you that for which you sent. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. For your glory we pray. Amen.